G'day folks, welcome to the Finance Hour on this uh, wintry day in uh, autumn. It's good to be here. My name's Ruben Zelwa. Uh, I'm a financial planner at Adapt Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in. I know we've got some long-time listeners there, so I appreciate you uh, listening to the show regularly. We're up to episode number 70 today, so it's been quite a journey. Uh, all the episodes are available on my website, adaptwealth.com.au. You can search also the Finance Hour on iTunes which I know where most of people get their podcasts, and also, of course, the J-Air website as well. So on this week's show, we are going to do a bit of a deep dive about investments. Everyone's been hearing about interest rates dropping and dropping, and there was actually a Reserve Bank announcement yesterday where a lot of people expected the interest rates to drop, uh, but they didn't. Um, But having said that, they are at historical lows now, and it does represent challenges for investors who are trying to generate some income from their portfolio. Uh, if you want to be really conservative and you put money in term deposits, you're only getting 2 to 2.5%. Two uh, people buying properties, particularly residential properties, are getting yields of around about the same as that as well uh, after you take into account costs. So uh, people often don't realise you can get good uh, income from the share market in terms of dividends. Uh, and we're going to speak to a particular fund manager today uh, that focuses on on generating high levels of income from Australian share investments. Uh, so that's Michael O'Neill from Investors Mutual, which we'll get on the phone in a minute. But just before that, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the election and, of course, Bill Shorten's use of the term term the top end of town. It's really starting to grate on me. He uses this as an, a jingo to say that he's working or that he's going to help the, the average Aussie and not people who are earning high incomes. Now, I do understand that there has to be some tax reform for companies earning billions of dollars. There's no question that uh, the Facebooks, Ubers of the world and YouTubes are really not paying their fair share of tax in Australia. So if he calls that the top end of town, I kind of get that. But he's also referring to people who are working hard, generating an income. Someone may be generating an income of 100000 to 150000 Those people are working pretty hard. They've got high expenses. And I don't think that they should be referred to as a top end of town in the derogatory way which Bill Shorten seems to use it. So I would love him to take a break from the lingo, but I don't think he's going to because I reckon it's probably working for him. Okay, uh, we're just going to have a very quick break and then we will get uh, Michael O'Neill on the phone. Okay, folks, today we are discussing how to generate income from your investments, which is really challenging given term deposit rates. Now, we are going to be speaking to Michael O'Neill from Investors Mutual. I do have to put a disclaimer here. Uh, We're going to be talking about investment products particularly today, but nothing that we say today should be considered to be a personal recommendation to invest, sell, you know, whatever. You need to get uh, specific advice from a financial advisor, someone who's licensed to tell you what the, or to help advise you on what the best thing you should do. Or if you want to do it yourself, you do it entirely at your responsibility. But with that in mind, uh, Michael O'Neill, have I got you on the phone? Uh, yes, Ruben, thanks. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me today. No worries. Can you speak maybe a little bit closer to the phone? You're just a little bit faint. Sure. Maybe okay. a touch louder. Michael, thanks for joining us. Um, I started the show talking about, uh, it's quite topical because term deposit or interest rates are falling significantly. In fact, 
Um, you know, many people assumed that the Reserve Bank was going to cut interest rates yesterday, uh, which they didn't do. Um, but it still seems likely that they will cut them more, and they're already at very, very low rates, which represents a real challenge for investors uh, being able to generate an income. So I understand that, that that's really sort of what your what the focus of your particular investment is is in terms of generating income from Australian shares. Is that right? Yes, that's right, Ruben. So if we look at the uh, alternatives available at the moment, certainly with the cash rate at 1.5%, uh, some deposits, I think, on average are paying about 4.7%, and that includes franking. No, sorry, that, and, you said uh, term deposits, not term... Beg your pardon? No, you said term deposits are paying 4.7%, or did you said did you mean shares, did you? Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm talking about um, uh, hybrids, apologies. 4.7% uh, including franking. Oh, you're talking about uh, listed. Term deposits. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and term deposits and uh, I guess... Um, uh, sorry, I'm getting a bit of an echo here. Okay, do you, want, do you know what, let me, um, let me hang up and I'll give you a call back. Okay, so you're talking about term deposit rates being yeah, around 2 to 2.5%. 2 2.5% or thereabouts. I think if you get investment-grade corporate bonds, you might get marginally more than that. Yeah. Um, so if you're just looking at your traditional low-risk classes as a source of income, mm. you're not really spoilt for choice. So in an environment where uh, long-term bonds are now below 1.8% in Australia, yeah. uh, the the equity market dividend yield of 4.5% starts to look quite reasonable. The problem with that is you are taking an investment in a risky asset class. Now, That's right. where we position our portfolio is we like to take an active approach which substantially mitigates that risk that you'd otherwise find with equities. Mm-hmm. So the dividends, uh, I mean, let's, before we get into sort of the, you know, your particular strategy itself, uh, as you say, you know, the dividends are on offer. It's about 4.5%, but when you take into account uh, franking credits, it's actually higher than that, although there's a big question mark around franking credits at the moment with the Labor government gets in. But but leaving that aside for just the moment, um, we are seeing, obviously, the banks have had a particularly hard time and they're traditionally sort of underpin, you know, the Australian share portfolios because they're such a large part of it and particularly mums and dads hold a lot of banks. But we are starting to see, particularly with what's happened in the Royal Commission, I know that NAB cut their dividend the other day. I mean, are the dividends that they've been generally that's been paid in the past, are they sustainable going forward or are they going to be cut just like NAB did? And it's an important question for investors and I, have, I think they have been uh, long thought of as a steady source of income. Mm. I mean, in NAB's case, you know, the dividend was cut from 99 cents yeah. to 83 cents. Yeah, it's a big drop. Yeah, it is a big drop. I think uh, after um, you know the Royal Commission basically putting a dampener on a bank's ability to charge fees mm. and also on the social and reputational uh, positioning of banks, uh, it became more difficult for them to go through their process of uh, discounting mortgages at the front end yeah. and then pushing prices up. So. Mm. Um, I don't think that's going away any time soon. Mm. Um, so it's one of their levers that they use to grow earnings, which won't be there. Plus, you've had the additional costs 
burden of uh, building, rebuilding reputations, rebuilding compliance. Yeah, um, or just, rem- just also, paying people back. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just paying people back, which yeah. is now running into the billions of dollars. Yeah, it's and, unbelievable. You know, could, could last for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so with all that considered, uh, NAB was paying around about ninety-five cents in every dollar out as dividends, and yeah. if the earnings are challenged. That becomes unsustainable. Mm. Uh, the questions are now being put as to whether Westpac needs to do the same. Yeah, uh, they, they've raised I think seven hundred odd million dollars in the last six months in terms of provisions for their wealth business. Yeah, and if those sorts of levels continue, their dividends at risk as well. Mm-hmm. So this is something that, that that could quite be across the board with all the banks. Is it? A- is it um you know is it likely that the other banks will do the same CBA and ANZ? Or you um, just don't well, know? ANZ, I think ANZ uh, in their case they they went earlier than the other banks. Mm. They're paying about seventy cents in every dollar uh, as dividends, although they are a lower returning bank, so there was a need for them to go first. I think Westpac, given the level of provisions, is probably the one next most at risk. Yeah, uh, CBA is a higher returning bank. Uh, than the others, so it does have a little bit more, I guess, um, uh, padding in its earnings. Yeah, and is it, what about the risk about you know other companies, other sort of big companies that make up the the top ASX? I don't know your Wes Farmers, your CSLs, or you know the big mining companies. Is there you know is there likelihood of dividend drops there as well? Um, I think kind of the big companies, uh, CSL isn't a, isn't a big dividend-paying company compared mm. to the banks. Obviously, the banks and Telstra have been the focus in terms of, of yield. Telstra has already cut their dividend. Yeah. I think once you get past the bank, the risks are a bit lower. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, so, um, and then there's obviously the big issue that's coming up with the dividends is in terms of, uh, you know, franking credits, so the people that are on zero tax rates, you know, self-managed funds and the like uh, may not get that sort of extra boost that you get from the tax refund. Do you um, do you see that that's going to have a, a, a big impact on the market or any impact at all? Uh, so I guess at the first level, you can look at who uh, who is impacted. I mean, it is we are a couple of steps ahead of this policy being implemented. But yeah. To obviously, win the election, get it through the Senate, might be watered down, but. Um, I think according to their estimates, it's less than 10% of taxpayers who will be affected. Mm. Uh, those with, I think, less than... Sorry, I need you to speak up a bit, Michael. Those with uh, less than $1.6 million in super and no other assets outside their house. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that if you've got... The, the pensioner government guarantee covers those who have another pension or allowance. If mm. there's a person fitting that category in an SMSF, they're they're um, excluded and yeah. then some may change their arrangements in terms of pooling uh, franking credits but I mean it is a, it is another step again to say what is the impact on company valuations uh, we have seen companies with excess franking credits mm. uh, distribute those um, yeah. ahead of changes so Caltex did a special dividend uh, which we participated in for our uh, non-tax paying uh, mandate clients, and we've also seen BHP and Rio do off-market buyback. Yeah, so they're getting those. But I think, yeah, yeah. So they are actually um, making sure they return that value to shareholders. Yeah. Um, but if you ask the question of um, you know 
in absence of franking, will stocks with high yield uh, be less appealing? Um, you know, with the rates that the dividend yield on the ASX 300 is of four and a half, and the fact that bonds are yielding such a low rate, and the uh, international share index is around two percent, mm. I wouldn't expect a huge impact. Yeah. Um, on valuation. Yeah, it's not like, as you say, it's not like the, uh, there are other options that are so much better, even without franking. Yeah, the share market's still giving a pretty good return. And as you said, I think, you know, it may only only affect a relatively small percentage of investors, even though, you know, they're complaining loudly, and I understand that, but it's not mm-hmm. going to affect every single investor in the share market, that's for sure. That's right. So, and in terms... Some- yeah, sorry, go on. I was going to say there are some income strategies that have been specifically targeted at stripping franking credits. They could be challenged. Uh, for our strategy, it's very much a second-order consideration. And, um, you know, we actually don't pay a, a great deal of franking as part of our distribution. We get it through other sources. Okay, so um, let's then go back to... I sort of cut you off a little bit before when we were talking about the search for income. And obviously, um, you know, the Australian share market does provide... A good level of income, yet it comes with the risks associated, you know, with investing in a in a risky asset class. Uh, but you were suggesting that um, you, know, you have strategies, particularly to mitigate that risk. Do you want to um, maybe explain what they are? Sure. And I think if we look at the market now, people would be wondering, you know, are we approaching the late stage of an economic cycle? Are things starting to get risky as the share market runs? Um, we often remind ourselves, and we've just released our 20 lessons for 20 years of investing, uh, corrections are an inevitable part of the share market. Yeah. Uh, any investor in equities does face this risk, and uh, certainly with market valuations high, um, there is an exposure there. But uh, the way we mitigate that risk is by investing in quality and value stocks from the mm. bottom up. If you can fill your portfolio with stocks that are of sustainable yields uh, that aren't dependent on the economic cycle as a tailwind to hold up their valuations and for them to grow, uh, you'll have a portfolio that's much more insulated in the event that the market does mm. correct. And mm. the parts of the market that we're most wary of are those exposed to the heavily Australian uh, consumer and those parts of market where there's a bit of a froth and bubble in the valuations, particularly technology sector, yeah. some parts of the listed property sector, which depend on development earnings, yeah, and yeah. also um, more stocks that are being priced on what is a very cyclically elevated uh, price rise or mm. at the moment. Yeah, okay. So you think you reduce the risk by by choosing um, choosing companies, but even so, the um, you know. What, a company that looks like it's quality and, you know, at one point that can change pretty quickly as well, can't it? I mean, it's not, you know, there have been plenty of examples of companies that you used to be, you know, I remember like a Pacific Dunlop, it used to be the bluest of blue chip, you know, and then it kind of imploded. I mean, that can happen as well. It's just because it's been quality in the past doesn't mean it stays that way. That's right. I mean, when we look at quality, we're looking for really enduring competitive advantage. Mm non-cyclical earnings and a very strong management team who can grow the business, things can change. I think you've got to be wary of businesses that fail to reinvest in their franchise. They can get disrupted. They can fall from grace. Mm. Uh, I think the opportunities are really in the, uh, the sort of uh, 
the the blue chips that are going to become uh, you know bigger over the next five years through compounding their earnings. Uh, often they sit outside the top twenty. Mm. Uh, so just finding those under researched opportunities can really uh, can re- really help your portfolio. But when you're dealing with the sort of top companies, I mean, you say top twenty or top fifty. I mean, is anything really under researched? I mean, you know, there's so many investors, fund managers, all sort of fishing in the same pool. I mean, how can you actually find something that's that's under researched in that in the sort of even in the top one hundred stocks? Uh, that, that's a fair point. I think, I mean, first of all, we do have a very concentrated index. You've got 31% financials and 19% resources. I think just by stepping away from those two sectors and investing in the broader economy, some of the more defensive components, you can get a bit of risk return outcome to begin with. Uh, the other thing to, to remind ourselves of is that more than ever, markets are trading on noise. I think mm. in the US, and it's probably true of Australia too, uh, the majority of traded volumes on any given day are through uh, the passive high-frequency trading or ETF strategy. So mm. even though we have a well-researched market, it's almost the problem that we've got too much information, not enough, not not so much that we don't have enough. And uh, if you have a view based on fundamentals, mm. when volatility does come, and stocks are sold off irrationally on short-term noise, you can get real opportunities. Mm. I mean, one stock that we've been adding to lately, which you'd probably consider a blue chip, it's just outside the top 50. Uh, it's been sold off quite a bit. Uh, it's Tabcorp. Mm. Uh, even as a big fund manager, we're able to build a reasonable position in that when it's out of favour. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that the rise of the sort of index uh, exchange trader fund or index investing, which is really... You know, growing and growing. I mean, obviously in the US it's it's enormous, and here it's growing as well. Um, you know, and I guess it's growing on the basis of you know lower costs, uh, the fact that a lot of active fund managers don't outperform the index. Um, but does that does that sort of growth of the, that sort of uh, you know that sort of passive index investing represent a challenge for you or, or an opportunity? I don't want to avoid the question, but I will say it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, what we've seen in the past year is that the average manager, in fact, the median manager in Australia lost 6.7% mm. in 2018 versus the index at 27 mm. So the rise of passive and the rise of these momentum-type strategies has certainly made it hard for... Um, for your traditional value-based strategies. Mm. By definition, a passive strategy involves buying the winners as they increase in size. Yeah. So in the short term, at the latter part of what we've seen as a very strong bull market, yes, it makes things harder. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there are pockets of noise like we saw in August last year where the market sold off quickly. We could take advantage of new opportunities at good prices. Uh, and that's what we've got to stay vigilant for. I think the time when an active manager really delivers value is when uh, the cycle turns. Uh, they've got a portfolio which makes sense from the bottom up. Mm. It will tend to hold up a lot better than the index. Uh, yeah. That's what we focus on. And, you know, we use the one measure of our, you know, the most important uh, part of our portfolio being capital preservation. Mm, mm. We tend to uh, we tend to perform... Um, considerably better than the market when it falls and on average over the last five years 
we've only captured 55% of the market downside when it has fallen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah, moving a bit more here to your particular fund, and I suppose today... Um, you know, we're talking about the the particular fund, the equity income fund, which generates a high level of income. So, do you just want to explain the uh, the, the couple of ways that that uh, the strategies you use to do that? Sure. Well, first of all, what we do is absolutely pretty simple. Uh, we look at the population of Australian stocks, and we try and find those that represent quality in terms of recurring earnings and an ability to grow by reinvesting in their business with a steady dividend yield, but also value, so not overpaying for some of those sectors that we've talked about. If we start from that, we can generate a steady uh, income from dividends, which should be at least 4%. So that's our baseline. Uh, That's before franking. Because we have a fundamental approach to valuation, we have also the uh, lever of using simple options strategies. Now, I'm not talking about anything uh, engineered or anything systematic. Yeah. Quite simply, if a stock runs and it hits our valuation target, we'll write a call option. And what this means is that we're agreeing with a counterparty that should the stock continue to go up, they can buy it off us at a particular strike price. So we lock in an exit price and we earn a bit more income. Yeah. That tends to provide about 2% through the cycle. Mm-hmm. It will be higher in bear markets or, or sideways markets like we've seen. Mm. But very importantly, while we will realize some capital gain, we won't write so many call options over our portfolio that the whole portfolio will be sold in a rising market. We don't mm. want to be called out. We want to leave a little bit of room yeah. for growth in our unit price because it's important to keep up with inflation. Right, right. So you'll actually, so you you give up uh, some potential upside uh, yep. in in return for a higher level of income. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, and I guess that in that inherently um, reduces risk because the income is more certain than the capital growth. Um, that's right. So that you know, you, if you're changing the composition between income and the capital growth, I suppose that does make it more conservative. But on the other hand, as you say, if um, yeah, I mean, if the share, like, let's say you bought, you know, NAB at $25 and you sold an option to sell it at 26 and it goes up to 28 um, you know, you're leaving quite a bit of uh, profit on the table, which you're not capturing. So that, that, that would also, is that, does that represent a challenge as well? Yes, it does. And if you took a systematic approach to this strategy, you would find yourself getting into those traps. Mm. The two things we look at... Um, is first of all, anything with options being tied to valuation. So if we think NAB has significant upside, we won't write call options on it. Mm. We'll take, uh, we'll probably take 50% of our portfolio covered with calls, but that's only those stocks that we think that have reached full value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But even so, stocks which you think have reached full value can still keep going higher and higher. And I guess, they, the, you know, there's no um, there's no guarantee that they stop once they've hit full value. In fact, markets tend to still, you know, even if you look at it as ir- markets tend to get irrational and keep pushing things up. And uh, I think that's the environment we're in right at the moment. Mm. Markets have been very strong. Yeah. Uh, in this portfolio, we do write call options, and therefore our exposure will, uh, to the market will reduce as the market runs. 
But again, if you look at how we've managed this over the last year, our exposure reduced as the market ran into August last year to the peak. It sold off. We were able to take advantage of new opportunities. We've kept the premium earned in the interim, and then it's mm. run again. Mm. Mm. Uh, you do tend to lag late in the cycle, but again, because you've earned your income up front, because you have lower market exposure, you only have 55% of the downside capture, so you should more than make up what you've missed out on the upside. When the market, and I think, importantly, yeah. the, um, the fact that we have three sources of income, being the dividends... Uh, the option income and the realised capital gains, it provides for a bit of a smoother, lower volatility yeah. outcome. Yeah. So really the difference in this strategy is the um, is the extra income you get from the options because I suppose any fund realises capital gains, don't they? I mean, that, that'd be, that'd, wouldn't that be the case across any type, even a you know, more vanilla type strategy? That's right. I think it's important to remember, though, um, because IML is very much focused on quality and value, we tend to earn a higher proportion of our income through, sorry, of our total return through dividends. Mm. Uh, we tend to have a portfolio skewed to more sustainable dividend-paying companies, yeah. um, and this is just a, an even greater extension of that through the use of options. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so so do you expect, you know, in a very strong rising market, you expect this particular fund not to quite do as well as the market, but in a falling market, you expect it to do substantially better than the market? Would be? Yeah, well, our experience over history is we've had the steady uh, distribution, at least 2% higher than the ASX 300 uh, after fees pre-franking, and that's yeah. been the case over our eight-year history. Yeah. We've had two-thirds the volatility or risk of the market, and we've only participated in 55% of the downside. So we would expect to hold our, our capital position better than in, in a downturn and keep earning towards our income objective. Yeah, yeah. And, and why do you think it is, just go back, we are talking about Australia versus international before, and you're saying that international shares, you know, only give an income yield of about 2%. Why do you think it is that our is our market sort of unique in that companies pay such a high portion of their profits out, out as dividends as opposed to you know retaining it in the business itself? I do think it's characteristic of the Australian market. Yes, mm. I mean definitely the U.S. market. The the participants are a bit different, and certainly we've got a big superannuation in system in Australia that um, puts a lot of value on franking. Mm. I think it's also probably um, characteristic of our economy. What the fact that our, the fact that our companies don't grow so much that they well, that most of our listed market is the financials that aren't growing that much, mm. um, and of course, you know, we are at the mature phase in our economic cycle here. Mm. And you think that's not the case elsewhere in the world? Well, I think. The U.S. market is very heavily skewed towards technology sectors, mm. uh, which are capital demanding rather than uh, uh, capital releasing. So that's probably the biggest difference. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, and, and once again, going back to the fact that, you know, our market is so dominated by the banks and the resource stocks, do you think that means that the average investor has got is, is exposed to higher risk or, or lower risk, the fact that they've got, you know, that, that's such a big part of the portfolio because you could make an argument to say that you know it's a big part 
of portfolios, but it's a massive part of the economy as well. Um, and yeah, and the over cycles have tended to do quite well. But do you think that 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 the way our share market is uh, exposes people to higher risk than what they what they might think? Yeah, I think just purely that concentration in those sectors does mean that they hold uh, a fair portion of their portfolio in in two sectors that are uh, quite exposed to the economic cycle. Yeah, obviously banks have done very well. Markets have grown double digit for three decades now. Uh, ever since we had deregulation, that's been a strong driver, uh, and the rise in consumer debt levels has certainly helped the banks. We're getting competition coming in from new sources. We're getting a move from deregulation to re-regulation. We're having to hold more capital already in Australia, but now also in New Zealand. Uh, so a lot of the uh, tailwinds are now headwinds. Um, with the resources sector, that is very cyclically tied to uh, China. So obviously with iron ore as one of the main components in steel, mm. and China having had such a strong program of expansion in fixed assets like roads and rail, uh, that is at very peak cycle demand. And as a manager looking to serve clients on a on a, a longer-term approach rather than sort of providing speculative short-term gains, we don't think it's prudent to hold a high proportion of our portfolio in these assets. But certainly, if you're a direct investor who already holds, you know, a lot of these big top 20-type stocks, mm. what we do is complementary because we look beyond this to find a bit more diversity yeah, and hopefully yeah. better risk return outcomes. Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, and we had a chat about this another time before. The sort of strategy that you use in terms of you know selling options and capping the upside, there are sort of some sophisticated you know private or individuals that do that sort of strategy themselves as well. It's not it's not uncommon for people to sort of you know <laughs> do it at home. What you're doing, what's the difference between say the way I don't know an an, an average investor could implement this strategy? versus how you guys do it? I think the first thing to recognise is that anything we do on options is something that's informed by our stock research. Yeah. So we have a team of 12 that looks at the market in detail just to try and minimise the risk and maximise the quality and value. So when we start considering options on top of that, it's very valuation-driven. The second uh, point is that in managing the risk of our portfolio, we use a lot of tools to make sure that we're optimising our use of options around our valuations and tipping to certain risk parameters. But if the one point that maybe not be appreciated is that options are a market where a little bit bigger can help. Yeah. If you're buying or selling options as an individual... You're probably trading directly in the market, and you're having to cross the spread, dealing with uh, with a with a uh, an investment bank on the other side. Uh, when we trade options, um, particularly given that we're looking outside the top 20, we're actually uh, in a good position to get more favourable prices when dealing with market makers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you can potentially get a better deal than what the average person. Um, does if they do it themselves. That's right. Yeah. If you look at stocks that we actually actively trade options in, uh, some of them you might not think of as 
usual candidates, there's 78 different stocks on the ASX uh, that have exchange-traded options. Mm. So we can look at a wide range of quality and value stocks and use options without having to move away from our disciplines. And funnily enough, the best practice of the moon are in some of the staples or healthcare stocks. Yeah. Uh, we can step away from the banks and resources and earn you know, 30 to 50% more option premium. Mm, really? Well, because I would have thought that, that the opportunities would, would be largely in the big companies. I thought that, you know, there'd be the most liquidity there, but that's very interesting. Yeah, I think the thing is that we're providing an opportunity for some of these market makers who usually trade in the top 20 mm. to balance their books. So it's a bit of a niche. What we do is very different, and because we're fundamental... Uh, we can actually uh, write options in some of these names that uh, other other managers would. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming towards the end, but just a little bit more information. Just tell us, so Investors Mutual, so just give us an overview. How many, you, you just invest in Australian shares, and how many different types of funds do you actually manage? Well, our main strategies are our Australian share fund, which invests broadly in the Australian shares, so the ASX yeah. 300 benchmark. Uh, similar to what we've talked to today, uh, it's uh, a fund focused on generating high income. Uh, it's a little bit more growth focused than our income fund mm-hmm. because it doesn't use options. Yep. Uh, we have an industrial share fund which carves out the resource sector, yep. so I co-manage that fund. Uh, we have small cap and mid cap strategies as well. Yeah. So we've been around for 20 years running Aussie equities for 20 years yeah yeah okay and where can people go to find out a bit more about about you or about the fund the funds yeah I think the best place to start is our website which yep. is www.iml.com and when you look on that website I think a really good place to start to understand our philosophy and our heritage is our recently released 20 lessons for 20 years of investing it shows how where we've come from uh, having started pre the tech bubble in 2000 and it just shows how the lessons of the past keep being repeated and what they mean in the current market so I think that's a very good way to get an insight into how we're approaching things in this current market okay terrific well look Michael thanks very much for coming on the show today uh, I think uh, you know, you've provided some good insight into um, you know a, a sort of a, a particularly topical subject which is how to generate extra income which is you know so difficult when interest rates and and property rental yields are so low so you've definitely given um, our listeners something to think about um, so thanks very much for joining us thanks Ruben appreciate it okay it is now time for propeller head of the week propeller head of the week now, my propeller of the week this week is about an article I saw in the paper this morning, um, which was a really interesting app, which was called Get Reminded. Now, I don't, I haven't actually used it myself, but I thought the concept was really, really interesting. What it is, it's an app that basically reminds you when all the key different things, you know, subscriptions or bills that you have are coming to expiry. So it'll it'll remind you when your car insurance is coming due. Well, before it'll remind you health insurance your telephone bills, your gas, your electricity contracts. So it will remind you when they're due and it'll actually give you um, some suggestions 
to potentially look at how you can get a better deal on those uh, on those particular bills. And I think that that's a really important thing because saving money on bills like you know your electricity or your gas or phone, you're not actually sacrificing anything in order to you know save money on those things. It's not like you're sacrificing your morning or your afternoon coffee. So anything that you can save on those sort of generic type of products, I think is really worthwhile. So it might be an app that's worthwhile checking out, get reminded app. You know, otherwise you could possibly do it yourself, but make sure you set reminders in your diary for say three or four weeks before your telephone, uh, mobile phone uh, contract is about to expire, or your broadband, or anything like that, and uh, keep on top of it and hopefully save a bit of money. Okay, well, thanks very much for joining us this week. Uh, we will see you again next week.